Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are talking about the Bechdel test, which a number of listeners have written in suggesting that we cover. And recently, the director of Bridesmaids and also The Heat, which is the summer comedy with Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy, told British GQ that he's trying to make all of his movies from here on out pass the Bechdel test. Yeah, which is pretty awesome. Uh, it's it's a great thing to strive for. And for those of you who don't know what the Bechdel test is and why it's such a cool thing to strive for, let's let's define that, shall we? Sure. There's three steps. Okay. Number one, the movie has to have at least two named women in it. Two who talk to each other. Three about something besides a man. And. That might seem like a pretty simple feat, but you would be surprised how challenging it actually is to find movies that pass the Bechdel test. Right. I mean, just to think about it, I mean, it, it, this this rule, this test is so great to even consider because once you start thinking about it, you realize, oh, my God, so few movies in, in popular culture today even even sort of past this test. Yeah, BuzzFeed rounded up some 2013 movies that have already failed the test. Uh, speaking of Melissa McCarthy, for instance, Identity Thief, which she starred in with Jason Bateman, failed. 21 and Over, Oblivion, Mud, Jack the Giant Slayer. Yeah, then we've got movies like Hangover 3, which, who's surprised? No one. Uh, now You See Me, After Earth, The Internship, The Purge, and This Is The End. And for This Is The End, I, I wasn't surprised when I saw that on the list because I had seen the preview a while ago. And it's this ensemble movie, but it's an ensemble mostly of dudes. You have girl cameos every now and then, mm-hmm. like Mindy Kaling pops in for a second. Uh, but it, it's all narrowed down to... A group of guys, you know, and there's nothing wrong with a group of guys. No, there's certainly not anything wrong with a group of guys. I just think that like a lot of people have pointed out writing about this test, it does point out the fact that, you know, we don't have a lot of actual representation of ladies. Yeah. Well, so what other movies have not done so well on this test? Oh, I don't know. How about a classic like Star Wars? That's right. Star Wars fans, they do not pass the Bechdel test. Yeah, we've also got uh, The Social Network, Avatar, and Lord of the Rings. But it's not all bad news, of course. There are some classics that pass the Bechdel test, including When Harry Met Sally, Titanic, Clueless, Bridesmaids, Black Swan, Coraline, Juno. Uh, there's actually a website devoted to... Bechdel test, itemizing what movies do and don't. I believe it is BechdelTest.com, or you can just Google Bechdel test and it'll come right up. But Caroline, where did the Bechdel test come from? Who's what is what is this Bechdel? It reminds me of bechamel sauce. <laughs> mm, delicious, <laughs> delicious. Allison Bechdel uh, wrote about or or portrayed this rule, a conversation about this rule in her comic strip. Dykes to watch out for. In 1985, the strip was called The Rule. And she does specify in her strip uh, that she stole this idea from her friend Liz Wallace, with whom she was studying karate at the time. 
So, Kristen, what happened in the uh, in the strip? So basically, the strip is a scene where two characters go to the movies, but they don't actually end up seeing anything because none of the offerings pass the rule, as it's referred to, which we now would call the Bechtel test. One of the character comments that the last movie she was able to go see, because of the rule, by the way, was Alien. So Alien uh, passes the Bechtel test. Um, yeah, and, and in this one comic, in the rule, she itemizes the, those three criteria. And because it, well, actually, it's a little erroneous. Sometimes it's known as the Mo movie measure, because some thought that it was the uh, Dykes to watch out for a character, Mo, who brings up the rule, but apparently it was a, a different character from a previous strip. But this first came up in 1985, and it's it's kind of cool that we're still talking about it today. Yeah, kind of cool, but also unfortunate, because oh, yeah, <laughs> the fact that we're talking about it means that it's good that we're thinking about it, but it's really unfortunate that we don't have more movies and TV shows. We we can apply uh, versions of this rule to TV shows uh, today. So who is Alison Bechdel? Because the Bechdel behind the Bechdel test was also, uh, is also a pretty fantastic lady as well. Yeah, so in addition to doing her comic strip, which she did for 25 years, uh, she authored 2006's Fun Home and 2012's Are You My Mother? Both of those are graphic Memoirs, would you call them? Yeah, kind of graphic, uh, graphic novel slash memoirs talking about her relationship with her father in Fun Home and then her relationship with obviously her mother in Are You My Mother? And Bechdel not only has made a name for herself since, uh, you know, Fun Home, for instance, was a bestseller. And obviously, if she kept up uh, Dykes to Watch Out for, for 25 years, I mean, that's such a huge body of work. But she's also notable in the LGBT community because that strip was one of the first to portray lesbian relationships. And actually, in, in a, a larger, uh, to, to a broader audience than, say, things you might find in, in zines. Well, so we've explained the rule, um, but it's really not about finding movies that are really feminist in nature or about feminism or even really pro-women or even portraying women in a positive light necessarily. This rule is so much more just about the representation of women on screen discussing, like we said, discussing something outside of men, whether that is a boyfriend or husband or a son, brother, father. Yeah, it's more of an evaluation of whether or not women on screen are fully realized characters or just cliches. Um, and so tvtropes.org has a really comprehensive page on the Bechdel test um, and, and points out how it's entirely possible for a film to pass the Bechdel test without having overt feminist uh, messages or it could even be incredibly misogynistic and yet still uh, pass the Bechdel test. So, you know, what's the issue? I mean, why why should we pay attention to, if it's not looking for, say, messages about gender equity or feminism, etc., then why should we be interested in just seeing whether or not women with names can talk to each other, not about men? Well, the issue comes up when this becomes a pattern because of the fact that we even still have to talk about the Bechdel test It just goes to show that there are so many female characters whose 
lives, dialogues, um, thoughts, their whole characters that are constructed in these films revolve around men, whereas there are so few male characters whose characters, whose storylines do the same in reverse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was uh, watching Glengarry Glen Ross, old movie, uh, for anyone out there who's seen it, uh, this weekend. And in the middle of the movie, it struck me that there hadn't been a single woman on camera, much less named. There were some women on telephone calls, but that <laughs> Maybe was they it. were talking to other women and on they, the other end of the line. It could have been, but I, I was like, wait, there's something missing. Oh, oh, that, okay, this is... Glengarry Glenn Ross definitely does not pass the Bechdel test. I'll say that. Huh. Um, but what about... Okay, so you said, for instance, yeah, like with that example of, well, well, maybe these unnamed women on the phone are talking <laughs> to somebody else. Uh, Anita Sarkeesian from Feminist Frequency does raise the issue of the quality and duration of the conversations that women have, because maybe you have two women talking to each other on screen, but for a, just a few seconds, does that mean it should get the stamp of approval? Right, right. Yeah, she had a big list. I think it was from the 2011 Oscars, right, that she was talking about. And the, some of the movies she cited, pretty much everything failed except for two but the conversations between women were so fleeting. Yeah. They were so almost inconsequential to the movie that she actually proposes that there's sort of a, a 2B rule. So 2A is that the women have to talk to each other, you know, and then she proposes that it should be longer than 60 seconds. 60 seconds or longer to actually have a significant conversation. And one of the movies that she highlights in terms of looking at the qualities of conversations that these women are having was The Help, which obviously it passes the Bechdel test with flying colors. Um, but it brought up another iteration of the Bechdel test that could also be very handy. And that's a question of what about characters of color? Because uh, there you could call it the race Bechdel test, which is looking Looking at do characters of color, both named, talk about to each other anything other than the white leading characters? Right. Are they there for another reason than just to support the white leads? Yeah, and and there's a blog post over at uh, theangryblackwoman.com uh, talking about this. This was from 2009, and she was saying how the hardest part is just getting over the first hurdle of having more than one person of color on screen to begin with, much less than having them without any other people around talking solely to each other. Yeah, and again, this is the, just as with looking at the representation of women, looking at the representation of uh, women of color or even people of color in general in movies, it's about quality, not just a fleeting conversation, not just a background character or someone who's there purely to support the white lead, mm-hmm. but looking at the quality and almost like the three dimensionalness yeah. of the characters. Yeah. And a couple of examples that, that she offered from TV that would pass uh, the race Bechdel test would be Battlestar Galactica and uh, True Blood. But True Blood was kind of it kind of squeaked by yeah. a little bit. It still wasn't you don't still don't see really high quality relationships a lot of times on, uh, you know, in mainstream film between characters of color. So in a way, I think that the the race Bechdel test is almost something to keep a, more of an eye out for even than uh, the one 
with its original intent of looking at women. Um, but let's switch to the small screen. What about on ye old TV, Caroline? Indeed. Uh, there's much talk over at Bitch Magazine about how television shows can pass this test and whether the test should stay the same. Because with a movie, you're looking at, what, like an hour and a half, two hours, and a movie would pass the test with just a single conversation. But what do you do when you're looking at television shows which are stretched out over an entire season? Well, they suggest that in order to pass the Bechdel test for TV, every single episode must feature a conversation between two named female characters, not about men. Which, when I first read that, that seemed like a pretty high mark to meet. But they argue that it's not actually unreasonable. And and maybe rather than thinking of it as a pass-fail test, that we could plot TV shows out on more of a Bechdel spectrum. Right. And they use the examples of, for TV shows that pass, they use the L word and the United States of Terra. And like I was telling Kristen before we started recording, if the L word didn't pass there would probably be issues that we would have to talk about. <laughs> yes, this is true. Um, and some other shows that passed pretty well uh, for the TV Bechdel spectrum included Girls, Gilmore Girls, and Golden Girls. If it has girls in the name, <laughs> you might we might be good. Uh, Orange is the New Black, a new favorite of ours. Uh, Mad Men, Weeds, and Parks and Recreation. Surprisingly, though, one was call- that was called out for not doing such a great job on the Bechdel spectrum, 30 Rock. Yeah, I mean, Liz has conversations with Jenna quite a bit. But, I mean, if you think about it, her main, like, counterpart is Jack. Yeah. So she's always talking to Jack. She's always dealing with Tracy and always talking to Pete as he's having some kind of nervous breakdown. Yeah, and probably even when she is talking to Jenna half the time, she's talking about one of those people or Jenna's talking about her amazing boyfriend right. on the show. Um, another show that does not do a great job with this either... Sex in the City. Blows my mind. I know. I had to really think about it. And, and talking about this test really makes you think about it. Well, because half the time, you know, when when all of the, the girls get together at brunch, mm-hmm. what do they talk about? They talk about their respective men. Um, and there's even, I remember, the, I f- forget which episode this is in, but I totally remember uh, this bit where Cynthia Nixon, who plays Miranda, says, and this is during a brunch scene, she says, how does it happen that four such smart women have nothing to talk about but boyfriends? It's like seventh grade with bank accounts. What about us? I know. I love it. I remember that episode, too, because they were all like freaking out at the table over something. Yeah. And she was just sick of it. Oh, Miranda. I know. I I thought it was great. Are we both Mirandas? Why, yes, I'd like to think we would smartly point things out like that. That's true. And be partners at law firms. Well, another show that sometimes passes, sometimes does not do so hot is Grey's Anatomy, which I will point out that I quit several years ago. Grey's Anatomy was getting a wee bit too ridiculous for me. Uh, mainly, I just really didn't like the main character. But uh, Meredith, who is the main character, and McDreamy, like that's what the show revolves around. So that's what even smart lady character Christina, who I wish the show had been about, that that's all she talks about, too. Yeah, so even when you have a lot of times these smart, accomplished women leads, it tends to circle back to those male relationships. And again, the point of the test isn't to say we should strip out all conversations with men, but, you know, thinking about it kind of in the same way that we were talking about that the race Bechdel test. Mm-hmm. 
are these characters really ultimately just serving the purpose of elevating right the the leads who are typically male, typically white. Right. And I mean, keep in mind we are not arguing that today we should just stop making movies about men, starring men, you know, with women in supporting roles. I mean, we're not saying that. What we're saying is I think there are a lot of good storylines out there featuring women, focusing on women, focusing on women beyond just their romantic lives or their lives that involve men. Those stories need to be told, too. But I think there is an issue of like, okay, well, what movies are we used to? Well, I'm I'm a guy who may not be interested in a movie about women. It's the same kind of thing we talked about in our gendered book covers episode about like, oh, well, I'm a dude. I don't want to read some lady book. You know, and it's like, well, okay, let's let's think outside of what we're normally exposed to. Yeah, and the Bechdel test is ha, has been, especially because it's come back into these larger conversations in the late 2000s. Um, and, I, and I think because we have a good way of talking about it by using this test, that it is getting better, slowly but surely. Now that we have a way to, or have had a way for since 1985, to sort of evaluate things pretty simply, it's a, it's an easy criteria, set of criteria to remember, um, that, that maybe in the same way that those conversations about gendered book covers get people talking, get people thinking and paying attention to the media that are around us and the kinds of gender representations that are out there. Yeah, this makes me actually want to go back and watch 9 to 5 which is one of my all-time favorite movies. Mm-hmm. And and cuz I'm like, oh yeah, that would easily pass and I'm like, well, do they spend the whole movie just talking about the evil boss? Oh, sure, it could be. Surely they have a conversation in there somewhere about work or the typewriters or something. But again, if that doesn't pass the Bechdel test, a perfect example of how it's not meant to evaluate feminism per se. It's more just looking solely at how well-developed the women on screen are. Mhm. So something to keep in mind. We thought, uh, you know, since this is coming out toward the end of the summer, there's always lots of conversation about summer movies and blockbusters and such. So uh, I'll be curious to know from listeners. Um, I don't know. Have you seen summer movies that that pass or totally fail? Like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross did. Not a single woman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of Al Pacino yelling. Um yeah, let us know what, what your favorite movies are and whether or not they would pass the test. Um, oh, but before we sign off, though, what about the reverse Bechdel test, Caroline? You could easily have someone say, well, I mean, what about well-developed male characters, which are also important. So what, why can't we have, you know, a, a reverse test to see if men are talking to each other about something other than women? Because that would just be called movies. Oh... <laughs> Well, with that, <laughs> send us your letters, momstuff at discovery.com. Uh, I hope for all the people who have requested Bechdel tests that you enjoyed this episode and send us your favorite movies, TV shows that pass the Bechdel test with flying colors. Um, cause it's interesting to see how, you know, it, it doesn't mean that they're, they all have to be chick flicks. I mean, just listening to the, the list we, rattled off at the beginning of the podcast. It's a wide range of of films that, that pass. Yeah. So send us your suggestions, momstuffatdiscovery.com, or you can tweet them at momstuffpodcast, or leave us a note over on Facebook. And now back to our letters. 
So we've got a couple of letters here in response to our episode about the BRCA1 and 2 genes known usually as the breast cancer genes. So this is from Sarah, and she writes, I am a physician, an ovarian cancer survivor, and I have experience with a BRCA1 and 2 test debate firsthand. I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer at 31 in the middle of an infertility workup. Despite not having any symptoms of ovarian cancer, I had multiple tumors and was given a 30% chance of surviving five years. Six years later, I'm doing great and still cancer-free. After my diagnosis, I was tested for BRAC1 and BRAC2 mutations. As a doctor, I actually didn't go to formal genetic counseling, but instead watched the DVD that was provided by the laboratory company. I knew I wanted the testing even before seeing the DVD or even discussing it with my doctor. I'm a pediatrician, so genetics was part of my training as a physician. For me, to test or not to test boiled down to two basic principles. One, what would I do with the information? And two, did I want to know? And my answers were absolutely yes to both. I already had cancer, so it wasn't like things were going to get any worse. <laughs> my doctor said that BRCA plus ovarian cancer actually responds better to chemotherapy and would be a positive thing in terms of my ovarian cancer treatment. I knew from experiencing chemo hell I never wanted to do that again, ever. I had to make up my mind prior to testing. If I was positive, I wanted a prophylactic mastectomy and was going to pick out some nice breasts just a few cup sizes bigger. I was actually disappointed in being negative, both for the long-term survival issues and my new bust line. It was good news for my sister, mother, and cousins. Since I was negative, my family didn't need to be tested. I think ovarian cancer would be a great stuff I've never told you podcast subject. There are so many things you could talk about. So thanks, Sarah, for sharing your experience and best wishes for continued good health for you. And I have one here from Rachel. She says... Hi. Hello, Rachel. Hi. I'm 19 years old, and while I have not been personally tested for the BRCA mutations, both my parents have. Both of them tested positive for BRCA1 and 2, so it's safe to say I have both mutations as well. I like to joke that all my blood relatives have had cancer of some sort or another, including, but not limited to, my mother, both grandmothers, my maternal grandfather, and several cousins. My mother died of breast cancer five years ago. I've been seriously considering a preventive mastectomy since that time. My father and stepmother are fully supportive of this decision, and I'm waiting until I'm in my mid-30s for various reasons. Knowing I have such a high risk for cancer at such a young age has really affected the way I think about the future. Sadly, I view cancer as an inevitability rather than a possibility. Thus, I am willing to submit to a very invasive surgery if I can keep that from happening. I thought you might like some perspective from a younger listener with the BRCA mutations because not many people my age know whether they have this genetic mutation or not as the test is very expensive. So thank you for sharing that story, Rachel. We appreciate it. And thanks to everybody who's written in. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters. You can follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast and find us on Facebook as well and follow us on Tumblr at stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com. And if you haven't checked out one of our 60-plus videos on YouTube, I don't know what you're doing. Head over to youtube.com slash stuffmomnevertoldyou and don't forget to subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 